Thank you, Tim. Thank you, worship team. What a wonderful time of worship we've had this morning. And uh, let me invite you, if you would, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew and you can turn to Matthew uh, chapter 1. And uh, as you are turning there and as we uh, find ourselves looking at the calendar and where we are, we realize uh, we have made it past the turkeys. Uh, We have made it past our annual quota of cranberry sauce. Uh, Still haven't figured that one out. And uh, we are now in the world of Christmas season, right? Uh, For all of you late holdouts like myself who just seem determined to say, hey, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving before we drag all the Christmas decor out, uh, it has been drug out now, right? Uh, All the stuff has come out of the basement or the closet or the attic or whatever else. You got garland everywhere. You got trees up. You got lights. You Maybe stockings, maybe you already bought all the presents. I don't know. You're, you're one of those super prepared kind of people. You know, Bing Crosby has come out of the basement. The songs are starting to play. If you turn the radio on anywhere, what do you hear? You start to hear all the songs of Christmas. Some of us love them, some of us tire of them rather quickly. But the songs have so much connected to them. So many songs for us have specific memories connected to them. And so many of the songs ask very good questions. Questions like the question you're looking at right here. What child is this? We know the song, and even as we ask the question, we can almost hear the tune playing off in our head, and we start to walk down that road. But it's interesting in following how the biblical text itself answers this question, and what we're going to do leading up into Christmas is we're going to look at the way in which the Gospel of Matthew specifically answers this question, what child is this? And we're going to go to probably the least told part of the Christmas story uh, as we think of the Gospels. We're going to go to the genealogy of Jesus uh, from Matthew chapter 1. So grab your copy of God's Word, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verse 1 through the middle of verse 6. And uh, read with me now, if you will. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful passage of Scripture you have given us to look at here this morning. Father, open our eyes to see how you have answered this wonderful question that's been asked. To open our eyes to see the full scope of the glory of who Jesus is. And the Father, as we behold your glory, as we see that made manifest in Christ, and as we see all of who he is through all of the story of the ages, Father, open our eyes to see the amazing work of your faithfulness that reaches into our hearts and lives right now. Father, lead us by your Spirit and for your glory, through this passage of Scripture, that we would see the bigger picture. We would see Jesus for who He really is, our Savior, the Messiah, the one in whom we must trust. Lord, we ask this 
In the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, amen. As we look at this passage and as we think about what we just read, right? And maybe you're looking at this and you're looking at, you know, this is the beginning of the New Testament. And you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, why in the world does the New Testament start off like this, right? This seems like an odd way. You've got the greatest news that's ever been told to anyone, anywhere. Still is the greatest news to anyone, anywhere. And then all of a sudden, you started out like, I'm, I'm so curious how this is going to read. And you find yourself reading a family tree project, right? It feels like you're reading your third grader's assignment at times. You're thinking, what am I doing reading this? Maybe it feels like you're, you know, you're just scrolling through the names in your contact list, and it just seems like this disconnected sort of names that you're just processing through. Like all these people are connected to all these people. And yet through all of these names, God is telling us some amazing things about who Jesus is. Because the Old Testament ended with all manner of sort of loose threads hanging in the wind. Promises that were made that were yet left unfulfilled. Promises given specifically, as we talk in just a second, to David. Promises to Abraham. Promises that lead through and pictures that are depicted through all of the family members that are listed even here today. What we realize is that as we enter into Matthew chapter 1, we realize they were, in, they were living out Christmas anticipation, and they just didn't even know it yet because it was the first Christmas. We're very familiar with Christmas anticipation. Just the thought of bringing up Christmas sometimes is like, oh, there's so much to do, right? There's so many things to get together. There's so many people to think about. There's so many details I've got to organize. There's so much to sort of await. There's so much expectation associated with it. That's true for the kids. That's true for the adults, though oftentimes for different reasons. The last word, the last declaration there in Malachi chapter 4, you've got the one who's going to come in the line of Elijah. And they're waiting. It's been quiet for 400 years. And as they're waiting, the Greeks take over the world. And then as they wait a little, a little longer, the Romans wind up conquering the Greeks, and they take over the world. Constantly thinking, when is it going to happen? When is this going to be fulfilled? And then we start with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The chronicles of Jesus Christ is another way in which you could translate that. But before we speed on too fast through the name that is listed right there, we must slow down and appreciate it for what it is. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus, whose name, it would have been pronounced Yeshua, whose name means the Lord is salvation. His name is actually our hope. It's the only name given among men by which man can be saved. It is the declaration of his identity. The Lord is salvation and he has come. God himself has come to save us. Just like the song we sang a moment ago. Just like we're going to study in a couple of weeks when we talk about the promise of the Emmanuel and the fulfillment of it. This is the book of the Chronicles of Jesus. But not just Jesus. He also has this title. It's not his last name. It's his title. Christ. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It's a reference to the three anointed roles from the Old Testament. That Jesus comes in fulfillment of the 
role of prophet. He's the full and final revelation of the truth. He comes in the line of the high priest of Melchizedek, right? He is our great high priest, the one through whom we have access to the Father. And he is the final king, and he is the king of kings. He is the exact one whom we need. And as we read this, and we start to read the details, and we start to see that the genealogy is actually giving us the bigger picture. We're meant to see the bigger picture, that Jesus is the Savior and He's the Messiah. But we also have to realize when we read this and this declaration starts out, then immediately in the mind of the people who would have first read this, it's like, okay, well, He's got to fit certain qualifications. In order for Jesus to be rightly called and understood as the Christ, does He fit the bill? Could it be in Him that all the promises of God find their yes and amen? As the Son of God has been incarnated, fully God and fully man, into real history, into a real family line, what credentials are required of the Savior and Messiah? We're told there in the latter part of verse 1, Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Now, we recognize when we read this, not only in this verse, but also in other places within the genealogy, Son of does not always mean son of in terms of direct, immediate descent. It can also make reference to sort of skipping of generations along the way. There's a familial connection, but it doesn't necessarily mean one generation has passed. But we acknowledge here, here Jesus is being described as the son of David. It's a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, where there's the promise of a king who's going to reign on an eternal throne. And of course, you can read that in it, just as Tim talked about a moment ago, that you see sort of dual fulfillments oftentimes. And so you can see in partial fulfillment of the promise of 2 Samuel 7, Solomon is born, but then you read in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You know, Solomon lives and then dies. And then you read the story of the kings, and you see this sort of up and down, mostly down progress. It's like you're constantly asking, is this the king? Is this the one we've been waiting for? And you constantly answer, no, no, no. And like a loose thread hanging out across history. When is the king going to come? When will he arrive? Jesus has come. Not only is he the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. And when you read that within context, within the book of Genesis, before you even get to the promise, the initial promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you read Genesis chapter 11. And what you're reading is the story of people who are trying to make a name for themselves. And so what they go about to do, they try to make a name for themselves, and it ultimately leads to their absolute destruction and confusion, which is where we talk about the Tower of Babel. And then the next thing you know, you find yourself following along in the lines of the sons of Noah, one named Shem, whose name means name, and then all of a sudden you have someone in that line of the name that God says, go, go to a different land, and I will make a name for you. And you see a distinction, and you see a difference, and you see a distinction in this promise. 
And you can read that promise in Genesis chapter 12, you know, verses two and three, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it's repeated time and time and time again throughout Genesis. And it's like this promise is just out there awaiting fulfillment. It feels like Christmas, doesn't it? Promises that are out there that are awaiting fulfillment. We feel that stress. We ask those things. We're waiting for it to happen. And yet in the midst of all this, this Christmas story told in this way reminds us God fulfills His promise. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus' genealogy proves that. Jesus' identity, Jesus' life, death, resurrection demonstrates and proves all of that. God fulfills His promise. And so that as we sing this song, what child is this who's laid to rest when Mary's lap is sleeping? The Gospel of Matthew answers this with pristine clarity. But in order for us to see it well, we have to see the depth of God's promise-keeping power. And that we are led to see not only who Jesus is, but why we ought to trust in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And you start off with this list of names. In verse 2, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And as you can see from reading this, Christmas lists did not come from our culture. Here we have a Christmas list. It reads a little different than the ones that uh, are often delivered to us for via all manner of smaller people. But the list itself is important. And the list itself actually tells a story as it tells the proof of identity. And it's sort of like as we're reading this, what we're seeing is that this is like connect the dots through genealogy. A lot of times we can read this and we're just sort of picking out the points along the way. And you're sort of, you know, making the points and you're seeing all these sorts of things. And if you don't connect them all together, all you have is just this disconnected mass of dots. But as you trace the lines between the dots, a picture starts to emerge. A picture of God's love and grace. A picture of God's faithfulness. A picture of His redeeming power and wonder and glory and might and care and mercy. Out of what looks like a mass of disconnected dots, we see God is faithful. In the face of the horror of human sinfulness, we see God keeps His promises. Christmas itself is proof. Abraham's the father of Isaac. This is a familiar story. If for nothing else, we're familiar with the children's song, right? Father Abraham. Amen. You're welcome, by the way. It's stuck in your head now, too. 
We're familiar with this story, right? Abraham fathered Isaac. Abraham was old. Sarah was old-ish, right? Promise was given. And you think of their lives being lived out, and you think of how hard it was for them to see all these people around them having children. Abraham having the lingering echo of the promise in the back of his mind and watching all these other people have children. There had been no infant cries in their house. There had been no toddler feet going scampering by. The promise was shadowed by the sorrow of barrenness. And in the midst of that, what we see is Sarah and Abraham decide to do what many of us often try to do. We try to just make things happen. Here's Hagar. This is a bad idea. But Abraham goes for it. Next thing you know, you have Ishmael. Could this be the son of the promise? This is not the son of the promise. Thirteen years later, God reaffirms the promise to Abraham. Abraham believed, and he's accounted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. And sure enough, look at what happens. Conception takes place. Birth takes place. And Isaac is born. Isaac, whose name means he laughs. A reminder. Every time Sarah would say his name, a reminder to her. God keeps his promises. Even when it seems absolutely ridiculous, God keeps his promises. What's impossible with man is not impossible with God. Isn't that interesting? That's sewn into the story right here. The very same thing that we find declared in the infancy narratives with Mary in Luke chapter 1. But see, Isaac becomes a picture in and of himself because God tested Abraham with Isaac. And you remember that from Genesis chapter 22. And God provided a sacrifice. So God is saying, look, you're going to take your son up here and you're going to sacrifice him. And Abraham takes him up. This is the child of promise. Am I going to trust God when it seems like there's no way out of this? And then all of a sudden, right as God stays the hand of Abraham, God provides a ram, a sacrifice in his place. And then the name of the place is then changed to the Lord will provide. What a picture of substitutionary atonement loaded in right here. That as we think of who Jesus is, as we think of Jesus who is our salvation, and Jesus who is the Messiah, this is the the Jesus who also fulfills the picture displayed in Genesis chapter 22 of substitutionary atonement that the Lord will provide. He provided a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sin. He stood in our place. In my place condemned he stood. He bore the full outpouring of the wrath of God for the forgiveness of my sin. God will provide. God is faithful. It's amazing to see. And we've hardly even started. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac is the father of Jacob. Abraham made his servant promise that Isaac would marry a believer. God led this servant to Rebekah, an answer, a clear answer to prayer. Isaac's 40 years old when he gets married. 
And see, we read that, and it's, it's interesting, you know, we read things along the way, and it's so easy, especially biblically and walking through the narratives, we read these things along the way. Okay, Isaac is 40 years old when he gets married to Rebecca. It's easy to read, but I can guarantee you it was not easy to live. All that time wondering and waiting. All that time wanting to marry, wanting to carry the promise. Months turn to years, and years turn to decades. It's like I'm not getting any younger. Is God faithful? And all of a sudden we realize we've been here before personally, haven't we? Where it's like we're holding on to the promise. Is he going to keep true to his word? And it seems like this could take place in five minutes, and then it feels like it's been five years. Is he faithful? Will he keep his promise? Then finally, Rebecca is there. But then come to find out Rebecca is barren. And it's like another impossibility. It's like, how is this another obstacle? And Isaac prayed and believed and God answered. And then she gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau, one being the child of promise and one who would sell his birthright for a pot of stew. And all of a sudden, we start to we zoom out a little bit, and we see God is in control of all of this. But we also realize God's faithfulness is on display, not in a vacuum, right? Not in where everything is pretty and sanitized and put into place. It's not like the mantelpieces we've put out, you know, for our, our Christmas celebration, where everything's got its right order and you got everything in place. No, God's faithfulness is on display in the midst of the human mess. God's faithfulness is on display Similar to what your house looks like after the kids open all their presents and all that stuff is laid out everywhere on the floor. God is faithful when we can't make sense out of anything. That's the picture that's being displayed here. Do we trust Him? Within the real family and the real family hurt and the real family drama because it's only just beginning. Because Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. Of course, Jacob, not the firstborn, right? He's the child of promise. Been on his own way. He's all about tricking people. He's tricking his dad. He's tricking his brother, right? He's deceiving people. His name is eventually uh, changed to Israel, he who strives with God. Jacob eventually marries. You remember the, the saucy story, as you might say, from Genesis chapter 29. Because there he is. He's like, hey. I want to marry Rachel. And Laban's like, hey, I'll let you marry her, but you got to work for me for seven years first. But he so loved her, he's like, hey, it'll be like a day, me working seven years. Well, not a problem at all. Works for seven years. You remember the story? What happens? Well, he got duped, didn't he? Laban snuck Leah in there. Next thing you know, Now we've got Jacob married to Leah. And it's like, okay, well, I still want Rachel. It's like, well, okay, well, you still got to work for another seven years. And so he does. And so eventually that happens, and you're like, well, this is a bit of a mess reading this. And then all of a sudden, children start to enter the mix, right? And Leah eventually gives birth to Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulon. And Rachel eventually gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin. But then they get the servants involved. It's like, oh, we're going to have these, you know, competitions between one another. And so Rachel's servant eventually gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. And Leah's servant eventually gives birth to Gad and Asher. 
And then you start to read this and you think, man, I thought my family gatherings at my house were dramatic. Right? Can you imagine this? Can you imagine gathering around the table with competing wives and competing concubines and 12 sons and a bunch of little girls running around all competing for your attention and somebody who's just laying out watching it all happen? This is a mess. I'm glad you said that. So many people trying to get their own way. So many trying to entrust themselves to their own wisdom. And then they live in the mess of their own making. That was true then and it's still true now. But what we find in this story right here is a reminder that, yes, this is a devastating mess, but God's faithfulness reaches right through it, leads us right to Christ, right through it. Even still, the Messiah comes to redeem and reconcile. And what a reminder that no matter how messy and mixed up you may be, God is faithful. It's not a matter of you fixing yourself. It's a matter of you trusting the one who is faithful, who can save you. No matter how tightly web, woven the web of your own consequences may be, hope remains because Jesus is our Savior and Messiah. And we were like, okay, well, it couldn't get messier than this, could it? Well, then we read, in Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, pretty easy to read but it's not a pretty story is it because you got the 12 brothers and you know you continue on following along and tracking with Genesis and the brothers grow up and there's they eventually sell one into slavery and you're reading along in Genesis and I mean you even say that casually you're thinking what this is insane talk about you know discord within the family but they sell him into slavery, and of course the, the biblical narrative is, is focusing on Joseph for a little while, and then all of a sudden you have this interruption right in the middle in Genesis 38, dealing with Judah. Judah married a Canaanite, an unbeliever. This was very bad. He had sons with her, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur married Tamar. But Ur was wicked and God put him to death. Onan was supposed to take the role of his brother. Suffice it to say, he was wicked and God put him to death as well. Shelah was supposed to come and take the place of his two older brothers there. But Judah didn't want that to happen. And then in the middle of all this, Judah's wife dies. And Tamar has a plan. Judah decides in the midst of his grief, he's going to go and visit a pagan prostitute. Tamar decides, I'm going to pretend to be a pagan prostitute. The father-in-law and the daughter-in-law conceive a child. And then she makes it public after Judas feigns some moral outrage at her. And we're like, what? And then Perez and Sarah, children are born into the midst of this. 
You talk about skeletons in the family closet. You talk about broken families and mixed up ideas about what is right and what is wrong. This is the family portrait that never made a Christmas card. This is the one you hide and you don't want people to see. And isn't it important to see that in the midst of all this, in Christ, no matter how messy your life is right now, hope lives. Isn't that the message of hope in Christmas? What child is this? This is the child who came through the midst of all of this mess to redeem us and reconcile us and make us right with the God against whom we have sinned. That no matter what else is going on in your life, He is faithful to His promises. Even in the midst of all of the disgusting, sinful reality of the world. And as we continue to read from here, things sort of go off into the shadows of the uh, attention, right? Not much is to discuss about in Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Scripture gets quiet about the line. Will God keep his promise when we can hardly keep track of what's going on other than just writing a name down? This is the next one. This is the next one. Is he able to keep his word even when most people aren't even paying attention? Hezron is the father of Ram. You see some mentions of this in Numbers and Chronicles. Ram's the father of Amenadab. People are marrying and having children. Interestingly enough, Amenadab's daughter, Elisheba, marries Aaron, Moses' brother. And Amenadab is the father of Nashon. Nashon mentioned in Numbers chapter 2, verse 10, as a prince among the people. And just like that, the line continues, like little dots along the way. Like we're just plodding along, making little crafts, little blips, little reminders. That's how life is, isn't it? The way we see faithfulness is over the long haul, over the big picture. God is faithful through all the big upheavals and terrifying situations that we just read, but God is faithful through all the quiet moments that nobody seems to pay attention to. And then all of a sudden we read, and Nashon's the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And as we read this, we start to realize, you know, as as you're trying to keep track historically, generations are being skipped here a little bit along the way. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And suddenly the line comes into view again. God's grace reaches into the messiness of life. You remember the story in Joshua. Joshua sends out spies into the promised land. They come back. Having had this interesting conversation with a lady named Rahab, a prostitute who all of a sudden has been convicted of the fact that the God of the Israelites is mighty and she needs to repent and believe, and she does. God protects her and her family. And here this redeemed prostitute saved by grace through faith marries, has a family. There's like the story of grace 
reaches deep in the power of salvation as God gathers his people to himself. Because what we're told here is Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz. This is interesting, isn't it? Boaz, you remember in the story of the, the book of Ruth. And so Rahab would have, could have been his grandmother or great-grandmother, but nevertheless, she was a stranger of the faith who was adopted into the family by faith. And it's interesting, you remember these stories when it's one of your own. You have this reminder just sort of steeped in his mind that God welcomes those who are outside who will trust in him. And so Boaz had learned, even as a little boy, that God cares for those on the outside and those overlooked, and God cares for reaching the nations even, and that God providentially prepared Boaz for what he would face in his own life. As the story enters and we think of the book of Ruth, because Boaz is the father of Obed by Ruth, Boaz directly related to a converted Canaanite prostitute. Who better to see hope whenever Naomi comes back with Ruth, the Moabitess widow? Who better prepared to see that? Do you see God's hand at work in the midst of all of this? God guiding Boaz and Ruth together. God displaying that picture of the kinsman redeemer. Depicting this picture that the Redeemer would come, would come to be like us in order to save us. And they marry and they have a son and they have a son named Obed. Do you know what the name Obed means? Servant. So in the midst of a time in the book of Judges, which is when the, time, the book of Ruth is taking place, When everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes and sort of following their own path and making up their own ideas, God raises up a servant, an ancestor to the suffering servant who came not to serve, excuse me, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as amid amid all the stories of people abandoning what matters, God sends his son to save the unsavable and redeem the unredeemable and reconcile the irreconcilable. This is quite a story here, isn't it? And what we realize is that there's no way to put all this in the manger scene, right? We've got our little manger scene pieces and you have a hard time on the table trying to figure out where to put them all. And then you start to read this and you're like, we got to get a bigger table. What a picture. Look at how faithful God is. And Obed's the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Of course, we're skipping generations again here. Of course, you remember Jesse. And you remember at the time of Jesse. There's a king in Israel now. And his name is Saul. And he's an arrogant, childish, unbelieving man. And God is going to raise up another king. You can read in 1 Samuel 16, and it's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. Oh, I got a bunch of boys, and he starts to parade them all in out. 
And all along the way, it's like, nope, 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 nope. Finally, they get through all the ones that are in the house. It's like, you got anybody else? Well, there's the shepherd boy. He's out there keeping the sheep. You mean the promised line goes through one who is a king and a shepherd? Yep. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? What a picture indeed. What child is this? See, the incarnation of Jesus, the coming of Christ into the world, just his own genealogy is a testimony to the fact God knows it's a mess. That's why he came. God knows this world is broken and ruined by sin. God knows every life and every mess of every life and God knows the sin realities of every life and still God sent his son to save us. Across the generations, as we read in just these few verses and we're thinking, I can think of a bunch of reasons why I wouldn't send my son, God still sent his. What an amazing picture of his love and his grace and his reach and his kindness. And what a picture especially of his faithfulness. God keeps his word. Nothing can stop him. Nothing in your life or anybody else's. Despite every hindrance, despite every hopeless family situation, when unlikely and unseemly seem to mingle together and make this weird picture, God in his grace keeps his word. Because the line of David did not end there. The line of David ran off into history, endured another a thousand years all the way to a manger in Bethlehem. And he arrives. And we read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hope reaches us today. What child is this? This is the child who can give you hope today. Who are we celebrating? The Savior of the world. Who are we trusting? The one who's been faithful across all generations. Who do we need? The very one whom God the Father sent. He who is the promise and fulfillment of our salvation. Who is our hope. Who provides for us forgiveness. For all who repent and believe. The question is, not simply what child is this, but do you trust him who's been revealed by Scripture? Do you know him as Savior? Do you trust him as Messiah? Do you see him as the full and final revelation of the truth that you don't need anybody else? That he's the only one through whom you can have access to the Father as our priest? That he rules and reigns as king, that every knee would bow and tongue confess before him. And as we read this, we also have to be honest. 
Because perhaps today you're just living in a mess. And maybe your mess isn't as bad as this, and maybe your mess is as bad as this. I don't know. Maybe you're living in a world of sexual sin that nobody even knows about, and you're living out the consequences of it. Maybe you're walking in a world where you're just trying, you are bent on having your own way and you're making your own decision. I'm going to do it my way. And you're watching time after time after time. It just turns to ruin and it turns to despair and it just looks like there's no way out of it. And so you just keep going and you keep going. It just gets worse and worse. This is why Jesus came. You don't have to keep doing that anymore. God in love sent his son to save us. There is hope for you yet. There's hope for me. There's hope for every one of us in Christ. Because he who came and he who is promised, he who's depicted in all of this, is he who came in the flesh, was incarnate as a child, grew as a boy, lived as a man, was tempted in every way as we are, and yet was without sin. Who went to the cross and died as our substitute. He endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against our sin so that all who repent and believe will have forgiveness and everlasting life in His name. Won't you trust Him here today? Won't you see the bigger picture and trust him here today so that you can sing along with the song, what child is this? And you can get to the part in the the song where it says, King of kings, salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Who's enthroned in your heart today? Settle that before you leave. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. We thank you for your word and we thank you for allowing us to know you with such pristine clarity. Lord, we pray that in this moment now, Lord, that for any in our midst who are walking in a road of absolute despair, without forgiveness, without hope, without any sense of redemption in their lives. Father, may you open their eyes to the truth of Christ, that there is hope for them yet. Lord, that they would turn away from their sin and they would trust in Jesus Christ here today. That he died on the cross for their sin and rose from the dead and that in believing there is life in his name. Father, may Christmas be celebrated in hearts today in this place. The arrival and coming and enthronement of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in hearts. Father, for all of us here today, remind us of the greatness of your faithfulness. That in every aspect of our lives, we would live to trust in you. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory. Amen.